Reading from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now, there were about 400 men with him. Okay, so here David escapes and he goes down to this cave of Adullam. In fact, if you go to Israel today, they'll show you this cave. And I don't think that they really know which cave of the many caves that are there, but they've chosen one and that now is the, is the one they'll show you. Uh, but there are many caves around there. And it says that when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him in verse 1. So remember, he had these seven brothers, and David was the youngest, and so David at this time already had a wife, so his brothers already probably had wives, and they probably had some children among them, because remember, he's, he's uh, the youngest by at least eight years, and so there's children, and it says, all his father's household came to him, and so now... They're looking to David. And you know how, how sometimes your family comes around and now everything changes. You know, you were kind of on your own and here he is with, with some of his men. And, and now all of a sudden his family comes around and so he has all this to concern himself with. But he had this special anointing as king. And then it says in verse 2, And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. So we know from the last chapter that there were a few men with David, and we know that because when he went to get the bread, he had asked for five loaves of bread. And Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 2 that when David went to get the bread, he got it for himself and for some of the men that were with him. And so it must have been a small group of men at that point, in chapter 21, when he started to flee, because he just asked for five loaves of bread, so it couldn't have been 400 men. It must have been a small number of men, maybe five men or something with him. Now, his whole family is with him, so if you figure he's got these, these seven brothers, and each of them have at least one wife, That's 14 right there. And the mother and the father, that's 16. And then probably several kids. So the family itself must have been something at least 25. And then he has 400 men gathered to him. And so this is the beginning of the formation of an army for David. You say, wow, God's really building an army. Well, look at what he's building this army with. It says, everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Some army this is. This is what God did to form David's army. Because he was going to take that which is not and confound the wise with it. It says everyone who was in debt. And when the scripture says everyone, it doesn't mean like our everyone. If we say everyone, we somehow assume that scientifically, if you say take everything, you take the whole thing. Now, it, it's unlikely that everyone who was in distress in all of Israel came to him. Or everyone who was in debt in all of Israel came to him. Or everyone who was discontented. Because that would probably be a lot more than 400. So sometimes people will say, well, the Bible says all, so it meant all. Well, it doesn't always mean all when it says all. It just means that amongst that group, the people were either in distress, 
So something was happening in their lives, or they were in debt, or they were discontented. Now, I will tell you as, as, as one who leads a research group, I hate to work with discontented people. It's just troubling to me. So when somebody is dragging the lunchbox to work every day, you know, if they do it one day, I understand. This happens to everybody. When they do it every day, it's a problem. It's a frustration if people are always discontented. No matter what you do for them, they're never happy. Have you ever met anybody like that? God took a group of men who were discontented and said, Oh, David, here's your army. And David's like, Well, thanks a lot. You know, here I am fleeing myself, and now my whole family has come to me, so I've got to worry about my brothers and their wives and their children. And David actually had sisters as well, because we know that, because later on in the chapter it talks about his sisters, how, how, for example, Joab was the son of one of David's sisters. So he had sisters. We don't know exactly how many, but if you assume that, there must have been at least 25 of his family, maybe many more. And so he has all of them to take care of, but Saul is probably wanting to purge his whole family, which was typical in those days, so they come to David. And then you get people who are in debt. So people who, who are in a practice of making poor life decisions. Or they may have been in debt because of other stresses in their lives. Or it, and then it says people who are in distress. So something is happening in their lives. These are needy people. These are not people that are there ready to say, Hey, David, how can we help you? We are here just to help you. They are needy people themselves. And God surrounds David with all these needy people and says, Hey, David, here's your army. How do you like that? David could probably do much better fleeing all by himself. I mean, one lone shepherd in the wilderness, he knew this land very, very well because he had been a shepherd here in this part of the land. So he probably knew these caves well. He knew the land well. But imagine trying to hide... 450 people? Imagine the sanitation. Around 450 people in a few caves. I mean, it gets kind of congested, doesn't it? And, you know, this starts kind of looking like Moses. You have to have water for all of these people and food for all of these people, and they start complaining. I mean, just think of it. When, when, Daniel, when you're a father, you'll be driving in the car, and all of a sudden, it's your responsibility when, it, when people start getting hungry. Dad, why don't you stop? Dad, we're starving. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, it becomes your responsibility. Now you have 400 men, all of whom have some sort of problems in their lives, looking to you for something. So how is David handling this? What is going through David's mind? So where do we see what is going through David's mind? In the book of Psalms. There happens to be... Two Psalms written by David from this cave. So we're going to get a picture now of what's going on in his mind when he sees this. So turn to Psalm 142. This is like no other book where you can look at an instance and then you just turn the pages to the book of Psalms and you say, okay, what's going through the individual's mind here? So Psalm 142 it says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make my supplication with my voice to the Lord. So, you see what David's doing. David is crying out to God. It's not like David's saying, yes, 400 great men, great soldiers here to protect me. 
No, he all of a sudden has to take care of these people. Verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my troubles before him. Look at the relationship that David has. David goes before the Lord and pours out his complaint to God. Because he knows if he starts complaining to these men... Remember, David's a young man at this point. He's about your age. He's in probably in his early 20s at this point. And somebody who's in their early 20s has to be careful what he says to a 45-year-old guy who's in distress and discontented and in debt. Because this guy is probably ready to kill anybody. So you don't just go mouthing off to him, especially when there's 400 of them. And he's 20... He has to know how to handle this sort of thing. It's a difficult problem. And he pours it out to God. You have problems, where do you go? Go where David went. He poured out his problems to God. Most of the time, we never go to God. We'll just become distressed and in in debt and discontented and never go to God. David went to the Lord. He says, verse 3, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. David was absolutely overwhelmed. Have you ever gotten to your wit's end? Have you ever gotten to the point where you felt totally overwhelmed? There's no way I can catch up on all that I have to do. There is just too much here. I am the hardest working student in the whole world ever. Nobody has ever had more to do than me. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever had that? David says, I am absolutely overwhelmed. And he tells God. He talks to God about this. He says, you knew my path in the way where I walk. Therefore, I have, I have hidden, they have hidden a trap for me. So not only does he have these 400 men who are discontented, in debt and distressed, plus a family in distress that's probably blaming him, because I know how old the brothers are. They're probably blaming him. It's because of you that we had to leave our home. It's because of you that we have to run. We were fine in Saul's army, and then you had to mess the thing up. Are there any younger brothers here that know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, this is what the guy is having to go through. And then he's got his old mother and father. It says that they were advanced in age by this point. This is back even, even when David was fighting Goliath, they were advanced in age. So he got his old mother and father there that he's got to take care of, and all of this around him. Then he's got all of Saul's army looking for him, to kill him. And he's got to somehow hide now 450 people. It's much easier to hide oneself than to hide 450 people. It's like trying to hide, you know, Hanson College. I mean, how do you do that? How do you hide all these people? He says in verse 4, Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever been there? Felt like nobody cares about me? I have been there. Have you ever been there? Just felt like nobody cares about me. No one regards my soul. If you get to that point, what I try to reassure young people when they get really frustrated and stressed out is, you're not alone. Everybody goes through this. If you feel that your situation is unique in the stresses of life that you go through, I assure you, that's not the case. These sorts of things hit everybody. It's a matter of what you do with it. David just 
He just offered it up to the Lord. This is what we do. The Lord comes and we take all of these problems and we set them at His feet. And then we give that to Him and then He gives us love and joy and peace and blessing. This is what He does. We set these at the foot of the cross and then He showers us with love. This is the God that we have. You don't see God coming back and saying, You think you got problems? I have to put up with a lot here too, you know? I mean, God doesn't do that. David just pours out his heart to God and God just listens. Verse 5, I cried to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion. My portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So he offers up this prayer to God, and then he finishes it up. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Look what he does. He takes something that is not and proclaims it as if it is. In this situation, this was not happening. He was not surrounded by the righteous. He was surrounded by... You know, these are burly, middle-aged men that are all upset and, you know, cursing and spitting all the time. And he's surrounded by them. And when I was 14 years old, I started working in a gas station when I was 14. I told a guy that I was 16. They never checked anything back in those days. And by the time I was 15, I was the manager of the gas station because everybody else was a criminal. And I was the only one that they could trust. So I had the key to, to you know, the lockbox. And, I had, and there, were, there was a gas station on each side of the highway. And so I, you know, I had people on one side and people on the other. Here I was 15 years old and managing this gas station. And these guys were ex-convicts. They'd be drinking on the job. And just trying to manage these people was much more difficult than the job itself. And this is just a couple of guys late at night. You know, it was the 3 to, three to 11 shift. But, but uh, imagine what this young guy is going through. And, 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 but he takes that which is not. He says, the righteous will surround me and you will deal bountifully with me. He takes that which is not and proclaims it as if it is. And God does that in his life. What you see is you see what a man is really like. You want to know what it is to be a man. It is someone who knows how to go before God and cry out to him. You think, oh, this guy doesn't undergo this problem. This is... No, the image of a man is this. Going to God in prayer and saying, Father, help me. Jesus did the exact same thing. He is our image of a man. You want to know the image of a man? Pilate proclaimed it. Jesus came out all beaten up and scourged for our sake. And Pilate said, behold the man. This is the image of a man. This is the image of a man who the night before had said, Father, Father. And he cried out to his father, Abba, help me. This is the image of a man learning to go before God and ask for help. Turn to to Psalm 57. Here's the second psalm in this. Really interesting what he writes in Psalm 57 concerning this situation. Psalm 57. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, 
For my soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So again, he proclaims that he is taking refuge in God. He says, my refuge is in God. He says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. I'm going to cry to God who accomplishes all things for me. Isn't that a bit presumptuous? Isn't God a little too busy to be worried about one little individual? You know, he has famines and plagues, like, like, like uh, uh, Tevia said on, on, uh, in, in um, Fiddler on the Roof. Right. Yeah, he's got, he's got all these busy things. I mean, what is David doing? He says, he says that, that um, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He proclaimed that upon himself. It is a treasure to be able to come before God and realize that God over all the universe who controls everything, not just on this earth, but on every other planet, every other star, he who controls everything has his ear totally on me. His attention is totally focused on me. That is the God that we have. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. Again, he's taking that which is not in the obvious and proclaiming it upon himself. You take the word of God and you pull it upon yourself. Do you see what I mean? This is what builds you up. So that you go into this time at your wit's end, totally unable to handle it. And you say, God, help me. I don't know how to be a father to a teenage child. I mean, this is really difficult. I mean, I found parenting the most difficult thing I ever did. I mean, chemistry is easy. And having little kids was easy because any problem that came up, you know, I just take them to Chuck E. Cheese or buy them ice cream and it's all better. You know, and then when they're teenagers, you've got to buy them a car <laughs> to make them happy. And then even then, it's only for like two days. And they're upset again about something. Very difficult. I found learning to be a husband. Now, I have a very easy wife, so I can only imagine what it's like for some other people. And poor David, he had multiple wives. <laughs> it was much harder for him. He was at his wit's end and he learned how to take and to say, God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. Verse 4. My soul is among lions and must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue are a sharp sword. I mean, look what he's doing. Here I am, 22 years old, and all these guys around me are in their 40s and 50s, and their language... And the things that they say, and they're complaining. Everyone who is in discontented surrounded David. And says, my soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. These guys are snoring away. You've got 400 old men around you. And the older you get, the more you snore. And they're snoring around him. And it's like the sound of fire. You know, fire just burning. This is David's description of the people around him. You know, if he had written it out plainly, they might have read this and killed him for it. So he's putting it poetically. He says, my soul is among lions. I mean, these guys are really bad folks. 
I mean, remember, these are not these are not skinny little guys. These are guys coming from the wilderness. You know, they got they got hair all over the back of their hands and hair coming out of their ears. These are tough guys. And David has to be leader over them. Did, did you ever work with folks like this? When I was 15, managing this guy, all the guys were like this. Their mouth, their language, their behavior. And everything was a problem. They complained about everything. This is, he says, I have to sleep among these guys. And their mouth, he says, whose teeth are spears and arrows, their tongue is sharp sword. This is the situation that he was in. And then he starts praising God. He again proclaims that which is not and says it as if it was. And then it, if you look, look down in verse 7. My heart is steadfast. Oh my God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. He says my heart is steadfast. How can just saying my heart is steadfast make me steadfast? I am six foot four. Does that make me six foot four? No. I mean, but to say my heart is steadfast, how can saying something make it as if it is? Because in God's estimation, that is what faith is. He proclaimed something. He took that which is not and claimed it as if it was, and it happened in his life. When we say my heart is steadfast in God, and we hold on to that, our hearts all of a sudden become steadfast in God. We take that which is not and proclaim it as if it is. He says, I will sing, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. David was waking up very early. He says he awakened the dawn, meaning that he was awake before it dawned, so that as it started to dawn, he'd say, good morning. You know, he could awaken the dawn. Here was a man who knew how to rise up when all these other guys are snoring away. He would rise up and spend time with God. And he would say, I am going to sing praises to God. I got my, my lyre over here. I'm going to start playing to God. I'm going to play this thing to God. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. You see what he, again, he proclaims, I will do this. For your loving kindness is great. So this is what's going through his mind. Now, now look in verse Three of First Samuel chapter twenty-two. First Samuel chapter twenty-two, verse three. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, "Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you, until I know what God will do for me." Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and he went into the forest of Hereth. Okay, so David goes to the land of Moab. Now why Moab rather than, than Edom? Why Moab rather than, than some other place? What was special about, about Moab? Well, David was, had a blood relation to Moab. David's, David's great-grandmother was Ruth, the Moabitess. David's father was, David's uh, father, Jesse, his grandmother, was, a, was a, a Moabitess. So there was some blood relation there. So David goes to Moab and he says to the king of Moab, he says, he says uh, uh, 
please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he's looking out for the welfare of his mother and his father. Now, most of you in this stage in your life do not have to look out for the welfare of your mother and father. Now, some of them, that might not be true of all of you. Some of you, they might be more elderly than others. But in general, it doesn't hit people in their early 20s where they have to all of a sudden start caring for their mother and father. You say, well, what about the seven older brothers? No, David's looking out for the mother and father's welfare. So if you think that you're the only one that has burdens in life to carry, you're not. This guy has it. And so he turns to the king and he says, can, can I leave him here with you? It's, it's, it's tough fleeing through the, the wilderness with, with these old folks. You know, their, their wheelchairs are, don't handle the, the stones very well. Even today, if you, go, if you go on a tour to Israel today, you go to Jerusalem, I don't think a wheelchair can work. I mean, because all the sidewalks are up and down and broken, rocks up and up. If you don't walk, I don't know how to get around unless you have somebody to carry you. And so what happens is they have these tour buses that you could sit on, but you really don't see a whole lot from there. You've got to get, get in there. And, but all the neat places, you've got to go this way and that way. And through all, even today. So, you know, it's rough going around with old people. He says, would you watch over them? And so he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, rabbinic tradition, which has nothing to do with the Bible, but rabbinic tradition is that the king of Moab killed his mother and father. Uh, we don't know if that's the case, but we never see them after this. And, and it says that, that David went down into the stronghold. We're not sure where the stronghold is, but the stronghold is in Moab. It says, he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. Now, why, why would the prophet say go into the land of Judah? Because David had been anointed king of Israel, and, and, and the, Judah was going to be his first area to rule over. He was not anointed king of Moab. And so he said to him, flee from this place. You're not to stay here. And so he goes out of that place and he leaves that stronghold and he goes back into the forest within the land of Judah, which he knew extremely well because he had been a shepherd. Now, what's interesting about this whole situation is that David listened to the prophet uh, the prophet Gad. This is our first introduction to the prophet Gad. David had around him people that he listened to. People that he admired and he listened to. People that spoke into his life. He could have said, well, no, I'm not going back in there. But no, this prophet, this person that he really respected spoke into his life. Now, prophets today are different than prophets back then. I don't know of any prophets today. I know many people who say that they have this gift of prophecy, but I don't know a single one of them who's been killed because they're wrong. So in the Old Testament, if they were wrong on any one of their, their, their prophecies, something they predicted didn't come to pass, they were, it was given for them in the law to be stoned to death, to be killed. So prophets are different today than, than back then. Now people have the gift of prophecy, but it is not as if they are speaking the absolute from God. We have the Word of God, and prophets today, even those who have a gift of prophecy, sometimes, sometimes are wrong. In what they say. And I have known people that have special anointings and special gifts. And they're very good. But they're not 100% right. Because they're just people, too. And sometimes they feel a certain way. And, and so the way we view this is a little bit different than the way it was viewed back then. Because the scriptures have this, this defined pattern for us. 
But there's a lot there that goes beyond this. But that he had somebody speaking into his life was unusual in the sense that here he was, this young guy keeping this. Now I'll tell you that, that um, you know, there are people that have spoken into my life that I really respect. I remember once when I was a young believer, the pastor of the church that I was in, I was just struggling with something and, and, and uh, I was in church one day and after church and he looked at me and he said, he looked at me and I don't know why he said this, but he was spot on. He said, if you keep sinning, you'll become ineffective for the Lord. I mean, just saw something in me. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I don't think he knew. I'm sure he didn't know the details of what I was struggling with. But I really needed to hear that. He spoke into my life. And this was a man that I greatly respected. You know, people still speak into my life, and I have to be careful. I'll tell you, I very gingerly speak into people's lives. Because it's so easy for me to lose them. So in other words, if I see somebody, you know, maybe going astray with what they do, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll take you on in a, in a general message like this. You know, I'll hit you all in the stomach. But, but one-on-one, because people are so tender today, that if you don't tell them exactly what they want to hear, they leave. And you never see them again. And, and uh, um, you know, this, the Scriptures tell us that, that, um, that reproof, you, you know, that this whole thing of reproof, it says reproofs for discipline are, a way, are the way of life. That's Proverbs 6.23. The reproofs for discipline are the way of life. We all need this. I have gone to my colleagues. I've gone, for example, to Frank Jones, this this older professor at Rice who I really respect. And I said, Frank, you've got to speak into my life. When you see me doing something wrong, you've got to tell me. You've got to tell me. Because what happens is, people are afraid they'll lose you as a friend. And I have told them, you've got to speak into my life. He says, okay, okay. There was another guy that I asked him to speak into my life. He was a friend of mine, Kurt Davis. And one day, and Kurt used to come and do prison ministry with me, and one day when I was in the prison, one of the other guys that came in with us was a guy named Tim, and I had said something during my, just as the teaching was getting started to Tim, that wasn't very nice. And it, it had kind of pricked my heart, but I hadn't done much with it. And the next week that we were going to go into the prison, we would always meet 30 minutes early in the parking lot of the prison and pray, and Kurt got there, he says, you know, Jim, something you said to Kurt, to, to Kurt said to me, something you said to Tim last week, I don't think was really right. And I knew exactly what he was saying. And I said, you know, I know what you're talking about. And so Tim then came and I apologized to Tim. And then I went into the prison and before I started the Bible study, I apologized to all the men at the Bible study for what I had said to Tim in their presence the week before. Because I needed Kurt to speak into my life when I had overstepped my bounds and done something wrong. And the further you go in your walk, the more mature you become, the fewer and fewer people will speak into your life because they'll think, oh, no, you're more spiritual than I am. But the other side of it is, when somebody speaks into your life, don't get so offended that you run away. It is much easier, I'm telling you, it is much easier for me to say nothing than to correct you. You say nothing, cost me nothing. I just go away. It is much harder for me to speak into somebody's life because I always have this fear. I'm going to lose them. You know, they're going to get offended by what I say and I'm going to lose them. 
I'm not sure that I'm always right. I mean, there's some cases that I know for sure I'm right when it's an exact thing on the Scriptures, but I, speak, I have people speaking into my life. You know, I meet, I meet with a pastor every four months or so for lunch, and we just talk with one another, and I've been doing this with him since he was the, the, the uh, youth pastor here. And uh, uh, we just bounce things off each other's lives. But David had a man that would speak into his life, and he surrounded himself with counselors. For example, Ahithophel and Hushael. He surrounded himself. He wanted this sort of input. You know, there, were, there was a time when, when uh, uh, for example, I'll give you another example. For this, this church service, you know, we have this church service at 8.30 in the morning, which I felt is a bad idea for many years. But when it started, I really wanted to have a contemporary service in the church. This was about nine or ten years ago. And the pastor, one day, you know, so many people had gotten input, and this church doesn't do anything quickly. They very slowly about change because they don't want to disrupt things, which is good. And then they, you know, they weighed everything. And then one day the, they were supposed to have a meeting on Wednesday night where the pastor would announce if we were going to have a contemporary service and a traditional service. And you guys thinking, well, what's the big deal? Well, it, it was a big deal. Churches, you, you know, you upset a lot of people if you divide it in some way. And so he called me in the office on Wednesday afternoon. He says, Jim, you know, I've decided that we're not going to have the early service. We're not going to have a, a, a contemporary service. And I just wanted to let you know, because, because I know that, that you've been really concerned about this, and I'm going to share that tonight at the Wednesday meeting. And I said, Pastor, you know, I'll always stand with you, whatever you decide. But in this one, I think you're making a mistake. And I gave him my reasons. And, you know, we prayed together and said goodbye. And that was it. And I was going to stand with him. So I come to the Wednesday night meeting. He stands up. He says, we're going to have the contemporary service. You know, and, and so in, in that time period, he had changed. And so we had a relationship that was of value. Now, I'll give you another example. Now, so the service was at 8.30 in the morning. So we have this contemporary service at 8.30 in the morning, which is the worst time for a contemporary service. Contemporary service draws young people. Young people are not awake at 8.30 in the morning, especially on a Sunday. So for years, I've been trying to get them to change this time. And so two years ago, I approached the leadership of the church, and I said, we really need to look into this because, you know, it's not a suitable time. You know, the students about go to bed at four, you know, and, and, and so anyway, the pastor said, okay, maybe in six months we could, we could look into a change. And then Roger said, no, I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, so we left it out. I thought it was going to be six months. And then Roger got back to me and says, I want to do it after Pastor Landrum retires. There's just so much going on. So that meant I was going to be waiting a year and a half. So what do I do? Do I just leave the church? No. I serve in this church and I teach, I, I, I teach um, you know, under the leadership of this church. If they tell me to stop teaching, I will stop in mid-sentence. I am submitted to the leadership of this church. And, and uh, um, so then after the pastor retired, I thought we were going to do this. And Roger came to me one day and says, you know, now is not the right time. And I'll tell you, I was heartsick because the scriptures say in, in the book of Proverbs that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I told Roger, I said, I am heartsick because hope deferred makes the heart sick. And he reads Proverbs every day like I do. So he knew exactly what I was talking about. But I just gave it up to the Lord. And now, you know, finally they've announced it. So it is going to be two and a half years or so 
from the time I proposed it to them to the time it's going to happen. So I'm really excited to come January, it's going to move from 8.30 to 9.30 for the contemporary service. You know, to me, this is a major thing. But I have to accept what the leadership chooses. I don't just get up and leave. I have never left the church. I've been a believer for over 30 years. I've never left the church except when I've moved. Because I, I serve at the pleasure of the leadership of the body of Christ. They speak into my life. And there's this feeling like, you know, I gingerly want to treat people very nicely because if I say something that's going to upset them, they might leave. David could have speak, people speak into his life. This is a good thing to have this. To have somebody be able to speak in your life. The, the, it says in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 15, verse 10, he who hates reproof will die. In Proverbs 12, 1, he who hates reproof is stupid. I mean, how much more explicit could it be? He who hates reproof is stupid. Well, God, you're really not explicit enough. If you could just tell me something about... I mean, this is it. This is it. To be able to have people speaking into our lives, and one day you will get to an age or a stage in life where you will long for people that you respect the depth of their walk that will speak into your life. I want that. We all need that because we all, you know, get misaligned. You know, you've got to go to the chiropractor and get your, your spine aligned. I mean, we all need alignment in our walk. And so don't take it so personally in the sense that they're against you. They're for you. This is why they do that. This is why they correct you or else, as Jesus said, if there is no correction, you're like an illegitimate child. Correction and reproof is a way of life, the scriptures say. And David could get corrected and say, you have no business being here in Moab. You better get on back to Judah. And he got on back to Judah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and let them take hold of the blessing of being able to proclaim that which is not as if it is. To see themselves built up. To get past the things that would so encumber them in life. Father, I pray for your grace to be upon them. The grace of God. Father, I pray that they'd learn to strengthen themselves in the Lord. To get built up in you. Father, I thank you for the example of David. Who's gone through more than I ever will go through. And how he could strengthen himself in you. And proclaim that he will sing your praises. He will awaken the dawn. Father, keep us ever in your presence. And Lord, I pray that you come and you keep our hearts open to input and correction from others. Father, I pray that you speak to our hearts and keep us open, as David was open, to take from this man Gath in the midst of all the pressures he had to carry, to even leave that stronghold of security in Moab, and go out into the wilderness of Judah. Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of these young people and bless them richly. In the name of Jesus. Amen.